0: Other than the usual stuff I do, like parenting, and working, and writing, and walking the dog, and running uh, our sailing business with my husband, uh, I'm also a CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocate, which is uh, a volunteer. Who works for a nonprofit? in this case mine is called voices for children and um i work with foster youth in that they need a consistent adult in their lives so foster youth um experience a lot of trauma and grief uh, when se- being separated from their home um and then what follows is um A lot of changes that are all out of their control, obviously, being children, Um, social workers, foster families, therapists, attorneys. um, It all changes throughout the course of their typical 18 months in the foster care system. The goal, of course, is reunification, um, and that is the dream. Um, And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. But ACASA is uh, not an employee, doesn't work for the county. And so as such, um, I can be that consistent adult in a child's life. Uh, the one that doesn't change the one that can keep showing up. So I, um, see the foster child I work with every couple of weeks. Um, and we hang out and go to the park and goof around and stuff like that. Uh, the work I do as a CASA is confidential. I'm not allowed to discuss the case even say the child's name or reveal where they live to my own family. Um, so this is a way for me to help process the, um, kind of trauma and grief that I can't help but absorb working with a traumatized person. Um, it's just natural. Um, and all caregivers should have this kind of, uh, training at their disposal. I actually just went to a workshop last week about how to help mitigate the residual trauma and grief I experience um, working uh, working with foster youth. Um, and so one thing one way to do it for me is to write, of course. Um, there are groups available. The um, Casa organization is amazing Voices for Children. And they do provide regular groups for uh, CASAs to get together and talk. Um, And we're allowed to reveal everything because we've all been vetted. Um, And so we can really just let it all spill out. So um, that's necessary. Um, But other than that, that's really our only outlet. So uh, this story um, is fictional, right? Because everything I do is confidential. So um, hopefully I am representing the experience accurately. Um, all right, so here goes. Broken Rules Anna faced the forest in her camping chair. She had just walked her dog Zero behind the campsite, repeatedly getting tugged as he lunged at the squirrels. The mountain campground was crowded, and the campsite hosts were actively hosting, so she knew she'd get caught if she let him off the leash. She had seen a fawn in the spot where they walked early that morning, slim and spotted, with a delicate dignity. It reminded her of Henry, a very fawn-like man. Before Anna settled into the chair that was too straight back to be comfortable for long, she had searched the thick layer of leafy debris behind the long log that outlined and separated her campsite from the untamed wilderness. She found large pine cones, some almost one foot tall, with rounded and sappy cone scales. She picked up the largest one and placed it onto the picnic table, intending to bring it back for Seth. He was the boy she worked with. He was nine years old and living with a single man who was not his father. This was Henry, his foster family. Anna had learned foster families can take many shapes, all ages and as small as one member or as many as could fit into a given living space as long as certain parameters were met. They had an inside joke, she and Seth, which was born from a visit to an ice cream shop in Encinitas, off the Pacific Coast Highway, which was the fact that some things can be as big as your head, like ice cream, and now this pine cone. It was the second time Seth allowed himself to be transported in her car. She had been visiting him every two weeks for three months by that point, and while he seemed to enjoy her focused attention well enough, he would not consent to get into her car." Henry had told her that he said it felt that getting into cars other than Henry's made him worry about being kidnapped. The first time they went in Anna's blue electric car, it was because he wanted to buy surprise gifts for Henry. Mother's Day had passed with much awkwardness and disappointment. With no contact from Seth's mother, Henry tried to distract him with activity both inside and outside the home. The following week, Seth told Anna that foster parents should have a day too, so he was going to declare Happy Henry's Day. Anna was surprised by his level of empathy, given his age and all he had been through. She shook her head at the memory. He wasn't always sweet. Far from it. But look at that. Anna knew she was in for spending more money than casas were allowed per outing, $20 max, but who could say no to that? They went together to Michael's and got silk flowers, a mug with a dog on it, wrapping paper, and a blank decorative wooden sign that Seth decorated with a selection of animal and heart stickers. Henry was nothing if not an animal lover. Living with him and his pets got Seth not only over his fear of dogs, but he now really loved them. When they got home, Anna texted Henry and asked him to go into his bedroom for a few minutes because there was a surprise coming. They wrapped the presents up in a sloppy rush and Anna got so caught up in it When they were done, she wrapped Seth up in the remaining paper. Slipping off the wrapping paper tube just for a moment, Seth dragged an end table over to the middle of the sparse living room with one couch and a TV. He positioned all the gifts on the table with great detail, and then signaled for Anna to put the wrapping tube back over him, open on top but covering his face. He yelled for his foster father to come out, and Henry's doe eyes immediately misted. He unwrapped him with a laugh then tears as he opened the thoughtful gifts one by one. Seth recalled what Henry had taught him. Those are happy tears, right? Henry nodded. All the potty accidents, all the slamming doors, letting the cats out in the middle of the night, having to give him an M&M after each math problem to get to the next one. His bossy tone, always a command, never a request. The drawings at school, including burning buildings, people being chased and crying, "'Reports of sexual contact with another child in the bathroom at the YMCA. "'And yet... "'The second time Seth came into Anna's car, she used the oldest trick in the book. "'That's when she told him about the place that served ice cream as big as his head. "'That intrigued him. "'They played at a park first. "'The scooper did not disappoint, "'and Anna told Seth to hold up the sprinkle-rolled ice cream cone next to his face.' The only way to prove her claim about the size of the ice cream was photographic proof. She took a picture with a moment of hesitation. Her work as a court-appointed special advocate was confidential, and no one, not even her family, was allowed to know Seth's real name or see a picture of him. In turn, she was not to speak of her family with Seth. She figured it was because it kept things less complicated, and both sides got to keep their privacy. "'She never told her husband Seth's name. "'She referred to him as Little Man. "'Like, she'd say, tomorrow was a little man day, "'and he would know what that meant. "'She did tell her husband which neighborhood Seth lived in. "'It was too uncomfortable for her to hide from him "'something like that, her location. "'That didn't seem fair to her marriage. "'She showed him the picture of himself and the pic- and the ice cream, "'and though he was skeptical, he had proof positive "'that it was indeed, as big, height-wise, as his head i wouldn't lie about something like that you know she had told him seth had trouble sitting still while they ate at the high metal table he was swimming in stickiness by the time they left anna did her best with a napkin and her water from her bottle to wipe it off his face until his freckles reappeared following ice cream they walked down the block towards the beach Anna knew about the ice cream shop and the larger-than-life scoops because although she lived over 30 miles southeast from here, this neighborhood was where she had met up with her college buddy, Jonas, and his friend, Nick, visiting from Oregon two weeks before. They had come to paraglide off the cliffs of Tory Pines. They had been staying in Nick's van in the driveway of a house you could rent for just that purpose, like an Airbnb for parking. They had driven from Palm Springs, where Nick, his girlfriend, and their very medically needy dog were revamping a decrepit home that had been overfilled with animals. The walls were practically weeping with mildew, apparently. Jonas was along to help drive the coast, and ultimately, to paraglide. Anna learned from him the term para waiting, which came from the fact that, as with many sports, your ability to participate depended on weather, in this case, wind. If it didn't come from the right direction, it would sweep you right back into the cliffs from whence you jumped. Anna had met Jonas and Nick on their way back from paragliding, no waiting, that day, en route to their rented parking spot. Jonas and Nick had arrived a good 40 minutes later than they said they would, thanks to Jonas just having to check out those other paragliders he saw. She had suggested they meet at that park specifically because it was a midpoint for their final destinations that day and because maps told her there was a coffee shop next to the park. Well, across the street on the other side of the coaster tracks, anyway. The shop happened to be closed for the day by the time they arrived, but the handmade ice cream shop was open, and that made everything better, including her mood. It had been hot that day, and she did not enjoy waiting in the park for well over an hour. Anna and Jonas were friends from college 30 years ago, back when she had a floppy mohawk and Jonas was a raging, smoking drunk. They lived in the same boarding house near campus with the shared bathrooms. He shared her bed with her every night, but not for the typical reason. They were untethered from the only hitching post available in their young, as-of-yet unlived lives, their unrewarding families. Their need for spooning came from a more internal, private place. Where the soul slept is how she can verbalize it now. As much as she slept around with others that year, she and Jonas had never even kissed— they loved each other's being, but there was no attraction to each other's bodies. It would have spoiled the purity of their connection somehow. She did have an actual boyfriend for eight months or so, the year before the boarding house. It was with a local boy, Felix, who didn't attend college and never would. Felix worked at Mustard's Last Stand. She met his dreadlocked self at one of the ridiculously many parties hosted at the house she then lived in, with two girls from the same town in New Jersey and a girl from Texas. They had lived together in the dorms together, freshman year. Felix was sweet and in a band called the Acid Goats. She put on a hippie skirt and marched down to his place of employment the day after they met, asking him out, his logoed visor perched atop his dreadlocks. Flash forward the eight months. She had gone to college out of state and didn't want to go back home for the summer. So she moved in with him and his roommate, the hate and Satan, but didn't know that she would be in an apartment building where the dust blew into her face as soon as she opened a car door and started unpacking boxes from the back of Felix's gremlin. When she couldn't get a job at the water park across the street, the only thing around, she started running out of money quickly. She didn't have a car. The hate in Satan did not want her there and scowled at her every chance he got. When she asked for money for groceries, she had hauled from the fire grocery store in a shopping cart He simply looked her in the eye and shook his head no. She couldn't believe she got herself into the position of isolating herself on an island of crappy apartments while the boys, one of which said he loved her, and the other openly hating her guts, went to work. Two weeks in, she returned home. Felix quickly hooked up with another local girl, who also didn't go to college, but had a car. Anna came back at the beginning of the following semester and collected her things. "'Her friend Graciella drove her to the building "'and helped her remove her posters from the walls "'and her belongings from the bedroom "'she had so briefly shared with Felix. "'Anna was surprised her posters "'were still up in the living room. "'She had pictured the hate and Satan "'shredding them in a fit of Bacchanalian rage. "'But what disappointed her, "'right to the core, was the coke. "'Felix and the hate and Satan,' "'pacing and snorting, snorting and pacing. "'Despite getting cheated on and dumped while she was gone, "'she knew that Felix was a good soul, "'and this behavior scared her. "'She had expected words of apos- apology and closure. "'But from this cheating, dumping, drunk on the hate and satan Felix, "'all she got were giggles and sniffs. "'And, Anna learned by the end of the second semester "'of her junior year, "'getting a college degree did not mean one had grown up. "'She had been so close.' and felt nowhere near the goal. She freaked out, dropped out, and took a greyhound to New York City. On that bus, she saw her first tornado on the horizon in Kansas. A man sitting next to her, who didn't speak to her, but whom she chose to share a table with at the diner when they stopped to eat, bought her dinner, without asking, because that would have meant talking, she assumed. Anna had tried so hard to play by the rules, but her ignorance and her own unresolved issues with her broken family had forced her hand. She had to start from scratch, reinvent herself on her own terms. That following year was the hardest of her life and held the record for most regrets collected in twelve months of anyone, anywhere. But she did it. She grew up. Not up, exactly. But she had laid the foundation for a fresh life crop. In the warm sun-speckled afternoon in the woods, Anna refilled her coffee and refocused her thoughts back to Seth. The rock garden was a block away from the ice cream shop, also discovered that day with Jonas and Nick. It was a colorful, colorful and dynamic collection of painted rocks clustered along short winding paths. It was small, but you could spend a long time there. There were paint supplies and a few rocks off on the wall that lined the garden. Of course, she had Seth pick up a thin plastic paintbrush such a unique rich experience for this traumatized kid to make art to show yourself be seen Anna sighed at the memory he put a blotch of watery red paint on his walk, on his rock she didn't know what his idea was or if he even had one he started writing a word this was a kid who hadn't been to school very much despite his age Maybe he had gone to first grade a few times, but then there was COVID and he most likely didn't have Wi-Fi or parents that could turn away from their own addictions to notice he was still supposed to be in school. All Anna knew was that there weren't enough school records to know what he was academically capable of. It was true he couldn't read or write, but he was coming along. No learning disabilities detected. She remembered peering at his slow, awkward attempt to paint letters on a rock, despite not knowing quite how to form letters on a page. What a burgeoning moment. K. I. Must be kiss. Red lips. Anna confirmed with him. Kill? Yeah, that's blood. Oh, wow. That's something, all right. What would a trauma-trained therapist do right now? Anna didn't want him to feel that what he did was wrong. In fact, he did everything right. He expressed himself. He got seen. Well, let me take a picture and then we can put it somewhere. Okay. They did so, but when Seth walked away to look for another rock to paint, Anna couldn't help but tuck it behind some other brighter ones, both in paint and message. A compulsion to protect a garden visitor who might be adversely affected by sudden violence in such an inspirational place. Seth, as Anna knew from Henry's day, was both sensitive and empathetic in between his episodes of manic boyness. "'Anna could sense that he could sense her unease. "'Yellow, I'll make a happy face.' "'He was doing it for her. "'The watery paint and his unskilled hand made a splot. "'Her offer to help was rejected. "'He didn't have the patience to wait for it to dry "'to apply a face. "'Let's go,' he said. "'Anna took a picture and let him place it where he wanted. "'When they arrived home, Anna showed Henry the pictures. "'Oh, Seth, the garden is a place of community. "'Why did you write this?' Seth had an ongoing compulsion to make it seem like things weren't really what you thought. Like him saying he lived in Japan before he came to Henry's, insisting over and over to Anna that he was a vegetarian, saying that Johnny, his dad, who Seth later learned from court wasn't his dad at all, treated him well. That in this case, look, it doesn't say kill, it's missing an L. So, it was because he ran out of room that he didn't finish the word. He knew how to spell it all right. Anna didn't end up bringing the pine cone home. According to the piece of paper that was left on her picnic table while she was down in the valley hiking with Zero the following day, she wasn't allowed to collect from the forest. The piece of paper had a list of don'ts. Her don't was shown by an X next to the item on the list that referred to needing leashes to be six feet max at the campsite. Hers was double that, so Zero could be leashed and still play short game frisbee. He was a border collie after all. She had rolled her eyes at being called out for a leash that was not regulation length. Please. That wasn't the whole reason she didn't bring the pine cone home. It was more because it was large and delicate. Indeed, the next day, her last full day at the park, while Anna did an early hike with Zero along the Tuolumne Sequoia Grove, also against regulation, no dogs allowed, hence the early hour, she came across two sequoia cones. They were so small and tightly closed, so different from the big, flaky scales of the pine cone from the previous day. These little cones had fallen on the paved section, and she almost stepped on them. She scooped them up before she could talk herself out of it, one for Seth and one for Henry. They were both growing so much from their experience together. Anna and Henry always made time to chat out of earshot of Seth Of after her visits, despite his attempted sneaks around the corner. Time on the tablet put an end to that, to download feelings, upload information. Anna felt like they were emotional detectives trying to puzzle together the best way to patch this soul's, this boy's soul back together. Anna also picked up a thick piece of bark from the ground in the same grove. She bought Seth a pika plushie from the store, as well as a fidget spinner. When she saw him a week later, she brought him her gifts. The small sequoia cone. Anything else? the big chunk of bark. He seemed momentarily intrigued. He let it drop onto the table with a clatter. The pika. What is it? The fidget spinner. When he brought all the things into his room, he looked at her as he snuck the fidget spinner into his bin of toys, never to be seen again. She was glad she didn't bring home the large pine cone. Too much rejection. Though she knew she shouldn't take it personally. Henry loved his sequoia cone, and when Anna told him it could only be opened by fire, Henry looked disappointed. Anna reminded him, Maybe it's best not to plant a sequoia in a condominium garden. Two weeks later, Anna was back again. Seth loved to rearrange furniture. He wanted her to help him move his desk, bed, and shelves around. Before they got to work, he said, Look at my nature corner! And there they were, the sequoia cone, the bark, plus other rocks he had found around the neighborhood a shell from one of the many sunset walks he and Henry took at the beach. Anna smiled and shook her head. She should have taken that delicate pine cone that was as big as his head. She had already proven that she was a rule-breaker. Dropping out of college, revealing her location, spending money she wasn't supposed to, illegal foraging. Oh, and that year of regrets that first year in New York City. Stealing money from one employer, stealing clothes from another, not returning items from lost and found to people that asked for them. Those regrets had helped shape her to learn what she didn't want to be, and the rule-breaking well. Anything to help Seth to plant a fresh life crop.